Welcome to Belts, Bumps, and Barbed Wire, a pro wrestling podcast brought to you by DMV Wrestling at DMVProWrestling.com. Be sure to visit the site every day for the latest pro wrestling news. Thank you for joining us. Hi, I'm your host, Jeff Quentin, and today I'm joined by Dustin Tarr and Wes Bowman, who are going to discuss their careers in wrestling, as well as their time with Eastern Shore Pro Wrestling. Okay, the first question is, what's your favorite food? Pizza. It, what toppings? I'm just, uh, I'm a plain guy. I, I, well, I shouldn't say plain, because I guess that'd be just cheese, but I'm a pepperoni guy. I real, Keep it real simple. Just pepperoni and cheese, man. I'm a pepperoni guy. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that puts pineapple on his pizza or anything like that. What's your favorite drink? I'm drinking it right now, actually. I'm, I'm a caffeine freak. I can't function without it all all throughout the day, even just before bed. But right now, I'm hooked on these C4 uh, energy drinks. It's an orange slice flavor. And it's, uh, I mean, anything with zero sugar, really zero calories, I'll try. But for some reason, this the orange slice C4 is like incredibly refreshing, and it keeps me it keeps me powered throughout the day. I don't know if you saw the post SummerSlam press conference. Were they were they powered by C four? Yeah, they had C four for everything for sponsoring that event. And when Cody Rhodes came out, he actually they had the two cans in front of him. He actually did a taste test in front of all the media that was there and recommended the raspberry one of the two he tried. The raspberry, really, man. Yeah, it looked pretty pretty interesting. I was hooked on the Starburst flavors because I used to love the Starburst growing up, and they have uh, the cherry and the I guess whatever flavor the pink is. And I got hooked on those, but after a while, they it's like it's too much of a good thing, I guess. And I just I, I had to pull myself off them, and I got hooked on this orange slice. I've always been a big orange juice fan, and I got hooked on the orange slice, and it's just so refreshing. And like I said, just like I said, powers me all through the day. So I've been doing liquid death water a lot lately. When I buy water, it's liquid death, and I never thought I would buy a canned water, but for some reason, it just tastes so much more refreshing to me. It's something about being in the can. Aquafina water out of the bottle always tasted like plastic to me, and so I, I just can't do that. And I mean, Deer Park is fine or whatever, but the liquid death water out of the can is so much more refreshing. And Aquafina is just filtered tap water anyway. Yeah, that's it. That's all it is. Moving on, what's your favorite band or musician? My favorite band of all time, it's a, it's a toss-up between Tool and Nirvana. You know, I was a teenager in the 90s, so, you know, that I, you, you kind of couldn't help being an alternative-type kid. Uh, a teenager in the 90s, you couldn't really help but fall in love with Kurt Cobain and that whole, his whole vibe. Uh, and then uh, Tool, I just felt like they were the most talented musicians I'd ever seen. Uh, and that's live, you know, ever, ever seen them, the most talented musicians I've ever seen live, uh, as far as Danny Carey's drum kit is the biggest drum kit I've ever seen, the most extensive, and he's just incredible on it. And I mean, uh, you know, as far as a singer, a rock and roll singer, Maynard is incredible. Uh, his, his range is eight octave, I'm pretty sure. And, uh, yeah, as far as talent, pure musical talent, they might be the most talented rock band ever in my opinion one of my friends from high school is a big tool fan and she actually goes to concerts when they're in the area she moved up here from south carolina too just like me so mm-hmm. she goes to all the tool shows and she even went to maynard's side projects show recently yeah uh well pussifer or a perfect circle pussifer yeah uh, again like either way it's a toss-up between you know what's better that you know anything that he does it seems because he's such a talented guy 
anything that he does turns to gold. And uh, you know, I, I saw a meme recently. Actually, as as old of a band as Tool is, I saw a meme that was like, uh, you know, there's no such thing as like a, a fair weather Tool fan. You're either as hardcore as hardcore gets, and you can name their entire catalog and sing through the whole thing, or you have no idea who Tool is. <laughs> like there's no in between. You're not just a yeah. They're okay. I'm learning about them from my friend, and also because I graduated high school. We both graduated high school in '92, so I'm right in that same demographic too. Yeah, you're right in that wheelhouse, man. I listen to Sirius XM Lithium all the time for my main station on there. So in my car. Yeah, well, Nirvana and Tool will definitely be on that station. The next question is your favorite vacation spot. I, I love San Diego. Um, as, and, I, and I went out there during my time in the Marine Corps uh, as well and fell in love and then went out there as a, on vacation a few times just because it's, it's kind of central to everything out, you know, in that in, in the West. Um, I love Vegas. Uh, I'm a West Coast boy. It's, it's funny that I live on the East Coast because I'm, I'm so m- much more partial to the West Coast. Um, that's going to be my, my vacation spots. I mean, just because there's a little bit of everything out there. There's the mountains, there's the beaches, there's the cities there. And the cities are cleaner out there. And, you know, and the people are always, I I, I walked into a gym once in San Diego out on the beach. And uh, I was like, you know, it was one of my first times out there. I was like, man, everybody's in such a great mood out here. And and the guy at the desk was like, if the sun shined on you 80% of the time, wouldn't you be in a better mood too? I'm like, yeah. You're probably right. I would be. So yeah, the, everybody just seems like they're in a better mood out there. You know, the the pace is real nice. Like I just I prefer west to east. What's the last book you read? Ooh, I mean, it's definitely a wrestling book. Um, I I like I like autobiographies. Um, I've read, I think I've read through all of Jericho and Foley's books at least three times a piece. Um. So I'm going to say it was probably six, seven months ago I read through Jericho's first book again uh, just because, you know, he came, he came up in the time when I was getting started. You know, he, he started, I think, in 90 or 91. I started in 95. Um, and so, like, we ran into a lot of the same people. You know, I, I remember, you know, getting involved in the business and the first couple people – that I had crossed paths with that passed away were like friends of his. And so reading stories about them and like reliving that stuff, it's a very, for me, that book, his book is incredibly nostalgic. Um, as far as like, you know, we just, even though he's a, he's, and he's from Canada, like he's not, we're not from the same region or anything, but he's very well traveled. And so we, we cross paths with a lot of the same people and, and like his, his stories, are so similar to a lot of mine and, and it's, you know, so I, I've read, I've read his first book a handful of times and I, I bet you that was the last one that I read probably six, seven months ago, something like that. Last book I read all the way through, but I'll read excerpts from stuff all the time. I like his, stor- his stories from when he was in Smoky Mountain. Yeah. And I mean, I worked for Jim Cornette as well. So I, you know, like I definitely have some of those stories. <clears throat> Especially the Dairy Queen drive-through story. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a pretty uh, that's pretty spot on as far as like uh, corny at his craziest. I love the video. I love the video that I just laughed my butt off when I saw it the first time. 
I think I've, I think I've watched it once, uh, and it may have been right after I read that book for the first time, um, and like recognizing some of the some of the voices that you hear, and, and I think the camera pans through everybody at some point in time. But it's you know they it definitely uh, like I said that story and that video that's that's Jim Cornette at his nuttiest right there. I love the way Jericho was egging him on there too in the video. Oh yeah, and that's Jericho at his most Jericho right there too, like. He is, uh, he's, can we curse on this? Sure. He's a shit disturber. Yeah, I like Jericho for that reason. Even when he makes, I mean, even when he disturbs me, I still, this, I still like it. So, <laughs> just like Cornette, right I mean, the, Cornette's as far <laughs> apart from me as you could possibly be politically, but I like what he says about wrestling a lot of the times, even when he's saying things that are intentionally screwing people over are messing with people. So, I mean, he just gets a rise out of people and he starts trending. It's funny. He starts trending on Twitter and he has no idea why he has to check in and see why am I trending? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You got to kind of love that. There's a romantic side to that too, where it's like, he's so old school that he's not even tuned into all that stuff. I wish I could say that. I grew up watching mid Atlantic in the early eighties with my grandfather. So I, I'm, into with a lot of what he says and that was why i was into with a lot of things happened the last show that i saw you wrestle at down in fairfax with matw so right on man <clears throat> what's the hardest bump you've ever taken oh gosh oh uh, i would say Probably, uh, and it was, good Lord, probably well over a decade ago at this point in time, but um, top rope to the floor, accidental, but uh, it ended up not looking accidental. There was a, a spot that I was doing with a kid, um, I was much more trusting back then, but um, spot that I was doing with a kid where I, I go to the top and he does that thing where, uh, and back then angle was doing it quite a bit and, you know, still doing it quite a bit somehow. But, um, but he would, where he would jump up to his feet and jump up to the top rope in one motion and kind of suplex him off. Um, and, uh, like a belly to belly type suplex off and I'm standing on the top rope waiting for this kid. And he, he, it wasn't as athletic as he had projected to me. And, uh, he pops up and and it was it, you know what hurt the most is it was in front of like ten people you know at a national guard armory somewhere in you know somewhere in the Carolinas probably and uh, he pops up and runs to the you know runs to the top and slips halfway up there and knocks me off the top rope and he was fine he didn't fall like I did but I fell from the from the ring post to the floor and that, I mean, it sucked. It was not, it's, you know, it's not the bump that you're not expecting is the one that hurts the most. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, man, it, it, it definitely, it made me, I guess, uh, a little bit more leery about testing everyone's athletic ability and, and trusting them on what they say they can and can't do. Okay, and then how did you first get into wrestling? As a fan or as a worker? A little bit of both, but mainly as a worker. Okay, a little bit of both. Uh, uh, so wrestling was my escape. Um, 
uh, a child of sexual abuse from from age six to thirteen, and uh, it was my escape. I was at, at like seven years old, uh, flipping through the channels, and uh, stumbled across Mid Atlantic Wrestling. You know, uh, it's probably six oh five on the Superstation, and uh, immediately just fell in love with the with the real life superheroes in front of me. You know, I was always always into the comic book heroes. You know, always into Marvel. DC, but those were drawings, right? And so I'm flipping through the channels and I find this escape of like these real life good guys and bad guys, these superheroes, you know, larger than life that I can literally, I could go to the arena and touch if I needed to, you know, if, if I needed to see they were real, you know? And uh, I immediately said, I want to do that. Like I, I immediately was like, that's, that's my way out. That's my escape. Um, and I... Uh, you know, then was able to lose myself in my own mind for years until several years until I was able to, uh, sneak into, into a building, you know, right before a show at, at 14 years old and, uh, helped them set up the ring. And, you know, they, I, I got there early enough where it was like, I got there at the same time the ring was getting there. And I just kind of, I guess like I was big enough to where I didn't look like a young teenager. Um, and I was suave enough where I could talk a streak even at an early age. So I was able to convince these guys that like, that I was totally qualified to help them set this ring up. And I'm sure they were just looking for help too. So I helped them build the ring and jumped in there like, Hey, you want to bump around? Yeah, sure. Jumped in and bumped around. And King Kong Bundy was the, the top guy on that card and he happened to be walking in the building at the time that I was bumping around in the ring and I don't know what he saw in me I don't know if he saw a kid looking to escape I don't know if he saw himself in me I don't know if he I don't know what he saw but he immediately walks over to me because I, I tracked him as soon as he walked in the building because I'm, I'm a huge fan and so I automatically was like oh that's a superstar right there you know, Bundy, you know, he was fresh off WrestleMania with The Undertaker. So, you know, this was the summer of 95. And they were still able to take third-party bookings and stuff at that point in time. So he may have been still contracted with the WBF and was taking third-party booking. And he walked through, and he grabs me out of the ring. And, it, you know, who are you? Tell me about yourself. And, and I started talking, and, and we started chit-chatting back and forth. He's like, all right, kid, you're working with me tonight. And not like working with him, like in the ring, like I was working for him that night. So I took pictures for him, intermission and after the show. I uh, did ring robes and programs. I did music. I helped do music. Everything I could do on that first show that he could show me how to, he wanted to show me all the inner workings that he could. He took me out to ice cream and like smartened me up about the business as much as he could told me where to go, told me who I needed to go, you know, who I needed to go to right from there to get trained, to, you know, to work the next show, to work the next town, whatever. Like he kind of, he immediately started putting tools in my tool belt, um, paid me out of his own pocket, which at that point in time was the biggest payday I'd get for a couple of years. Um, he paid me like $150 out of his own pocket that night as a 14 year old kid, I was like, Oh my God, like this is, <laughs> this is going to happen every night. No, that is not going to happen every night. 
Um, and it did not happen for a long time again. Um, and so, uh, from there, I just kind of, I made my way around the mid Atlantic and around, you know, like made as many towns as I could for a kid with no license. You know, I, I jumped in as much as I could. I, as soon as I could go, as soon as I had a license to go and get trained. And I didn't tell my parents that I was doing this until I was booked on my first show. And what I did was I just brought them the tickets and they were like, what's this? And I'm like, I'm wrestling surprise. And they went to the show and they're like, this is what you want to do, huh? Okay. Like let's rock and roll then. But, um, but yeah, I just, I, I basically <clears throat> worked the system as much as I could as a young teenager, trying to catch rides to different shows, trying to catch rides to train, uh, try, you know, putting up rings, carrying ring robes, programs, doing programs, taking pictures. I basically broke in the old school way when, when the guys from the, 50s, 60s, and 70s talk about how they broke in when they talk about some programs and stuff as, as young kids or taking pictures or whatever um, and getting in the business, getting smartened up that way until they were, until somebody was like, okay, we trust you enough. Because back then it was still very much a closed off fraternity. And it was like, you know, kayfabe was very much in existence. We didn't have anything like this. So. Yeah. For- photography is how Heyman and Cornette got into it. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and, and it was like, until we trust you, this is what you're going to do. And I got to the point where they're like, okay, this kid's for life. Like this kid. And here I am, you know, 28 years later, still doing it. So clearly I was, or at least I had the sickness. And, um, but that's how I broke in. I broke in the old school way, uh, with an old school guy, um, and just never looked back. And I, he told me very early on, and I mean, he checked in with me until he died. You know, he, he always, you know, kept tabs and always was, was very, uh, uh, welcoming to me and very, and made me feel like I was home, uh, much like the Briscoes did. Um, you know, I, I, I touched, I touched base with them at, at, in like 2002 or 2003, maybe something like that. They were still very early in the business, but they had like, they had gotten in on the, like at a high level right away, <laughs> like for, compared to what I did, I, I, I felt like, you know, they were going to Japan as teenagers. So they, they discovered me at Maryland championship wrestling. And, uh, you know, they, they did the same thing that Bundy did really, where they, they took me around, they trained me up, they, they helped me get bookings. They, you know, I was in their barn taking bumps and working with them and getting better and better. And, uh, Bundy told me from a very early age, uh, in the business to always travel around and get trained by different guys and put different tools in your tool belt. And, uh, so that's what I did. I always went around. I, I did, went and got trained by the Briscoes, went and got trained by the Maryland championship wrestling crew, went and got trained by Shannon Moore and the Hardys and Shane Helms went and got trained by Taz went and got, and, and I say trained, but it's like, you know, you get touched up and touched up and touched up, you know, it's like they're putting finishing touches on you left and right and, and preparing you for different levels of the game. You know, I, I wasn't ready for television wrestling until after I'd worked with Shannon for almost a year, you know, he, he got a hold of me and was like, you're clearly good, but you look like you could be in the third row. So we got to work on your physique and we got to work, get you working. You know, Shannon worked with the WWE at that point. It was 2006 to 2008 is when I worked with him. 
and uh, he was with WWE at that point. So he's like, got to work the hard cam. You gotta, you gotta know where your cameras are. You gotta know where this is and know where that is. And and you know, uh, you need glamour shots. And you need this. You need that. And you, you know, it's it's preparing. Television wrestling is a lot different than working on the indies. And so Shannon got me ready to do Ring of Honor. And then Ring of Honor got me ready to do Impact. Taz got me ready to do Impact. Like, you know, it was different building blocks, I guess, is what everyone ended up giving me. Um, and that's what you do when you go around putting different tools in your tool belt. That's that's what you end up with is, is different building blocks to, to make you the talent that you will eventually become. I know I heard about training in the Briscoe's Barn back in January because I did a special podcast that was a tribute to, to Jay after he passed and had Ty Awesome and Tiberius Asante talking about it when they trained. Right. Right. And they, you know, and, and I think, you know, at one point and they had, it's funny. So when I first met them uh, or first became friends, with them, I shouldn't say first met them. I first met them early, early on. I first became friends with them. They would go to Van Hammer's barn and he had an old nitro ring in his barn and we were very spoiled getting to bump around on that thing and getting to work out, you know, on that nitro ring that bumped like a cloud. The ring that the Briscoes have and that, that Mark still has now today is a ring that me and my brother Chris bought back in like maybe 2007. It was like an old 80s WWE ring. So it was 20 by 20 with no wrestling mat. So it was just the boards and carpet padding. And so that thing bumps like a concrete slab. And so the ring that like, if you can, if you can cut your teeth in the Briscoe's barn is what it, what it turned out to be. Like if you it ended up being, if you cut your teeth in the Briscoe's barn, you can bump anywhere. Like you, you're fu- You're going to be just fine. So, so yeah, it later on, once the ring moved from, you know, once it moved from Van Hammer's, uh, uh, barn to Jay's barn, it became, it was mine and Chris's ring that ended up going there. Uh, that they ended up using and and that thing like i said it's like a concrete slab so and they they sit he mark still has it out there to this day so so yeah that it's a whole different world out there now but before we were kind of spoiled what are the differences i know a lot of fans might not understand the differences between the different ring sizes that the different companies have used and how that complicates things or make thing makes things easier depending upon the ring size Oh, wow. Uh, so typically, uh, in the mid Atlantic, you would have smaller rings up, up North in, in the, in like the Northeast, we'd have, we'd have bigger rings, uh, 20 by 20, 18 by 18, uh, down South. It was typically because it was a more athletic style down South. Um, and, and that evolved throughout the years. Don't get me wrong. That, that definitely now the Northeast, like that Northeast style is crazy athletic and down south, things tend to move a little bit slower. But in the 80s and 90s, like when I was coming up, up north, it was more the big man style. And down south was more the athletic style that like the Midnights and the Rock and Roll Express would work. So you wanted kind of a smaller, and there were smaller guys. And so you wanted kind of a smaller ring. And that smaller ring, and that the bigger rings in the 80s and 90s would bump a lot harder because they were made for bigger men. They were more heavy duty. Uh, the, the smaller rings would bump a little bit easier, a little bit lighter and were made for more high flying, you know, more athletic action. Um, it evolved throughout the years. 
the uh, you know the six-sided ring bumps like concrete. It's terrible because of the way that the ring is built, because of the way the boards are cut, um, and because of the way it's put together. It it is like the boys at, at Impact uh, when they went away from the six-sided and back to the four-cornered ring. They were very very happy with that. Um, you know, I got lucky. My week with Impact, we had the four-corner ring. Not long after that, when I was done there, they went back to the six-sided ring, and a lot of the guys threw a fit about it because it is torturous on your body. Like, it's that six-sided ring because it bumps like those old-school 80s rings, you know, because of the way it's built. Not because it's built for bigger guys, but because it's built and the boards are cut differently and put together differently. Um, like, it's it bumps a lot harder. Like it, it doesn't absorb the impact like a four cornered ring does. So all different sizes of ring bump different. The different shapes of ring bump differently. Um, I, I much prefer like an 18 by 18 ring. Uh, obviously for four corners, like I, I do not like bumping in the six sided ring. It's not fun. I, I tweeted just the other day. Uh, it was a, uh, there was a, a video of AJ flying through that cage, that horrible cage that TNA used to use uh, into that six-sided ring. And he smacks his arm on the way down on the top of that opening in the cage and then hits that six-sided ring with no one catching him, even though he jumps in the middle of four legends. Not a single person caught him. Uh, whether it was mistimed uh, because he hit the top of the cage whether everyone thought the other guy was going to catch him or what, he smacks that that ring and all shoulder, and it's like my heart like leaps out of my throat every time I see that video because I know how much that hurt. Like that 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 six sided ring bumping in that thing was no joke, and bumping from thirteen or fourteen feet up, I can cannot imagine that. Like so, yeah, my my heart's in my throat every time I see that video of AJ bumping in that ring from the top of that cage. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it, you know, all different sized rings and different shapes ring bump differently because of the way they're built, uh, back in the eighties and the nineties, which is what everybody goes by in the Northeast, the WWE, you know, those 20 by 20 big man rings were made for TV and it was made for Saturday night's main event where, <coughs> um, is it Dick Ebersaw? I believe he didn't like when they'd hit the ring and, and they pop up, you know, from hitting the ring. He wanted them to hit the ring and stay down. So he wanted that visual for television. He wanted it to look like a street fight when they hit the ground. And so, you know, that's the way those rings were built for those big men. For when you hit that ring, you stayed out. It was built more like a boxing ring. And so, you know, it was for the visual on television. They stayed with those rings until the Attitude Era, until the late 90s when they made that change because – a lot of the boys were smaller and they're like, we, you know, they're taking a beating. Their bodies are taking a beating. And so they switched away from those 20 by 20 monstrosities and switched to a more athletic bumping ring. Took a, took a page from ECW and from who used a more mid-Atlantic style ring. That ECW ring bumped like a cloud and you'd pop up six feet in the air when you'd bump on it. You know, it was just, it's just the way it was made. Okay, for my next question, I just want to ask you about the wrestlers who were the biggest influences on you, and also which ones you've had the best time working with. Biggest influence personally 
you know, Bundy and, and Jay Briscoe. And, and don't get me wrong. Like I love Mark to death too. Mark, Mark has always been good to me, but Jay and I were closer. Um, Jay and I talked more, uh, Jay and I were, you know, I related more to Jay, um, you know, and it, it just, uh, immediately an immediate bond. Uh, our styles were more similar. You know, Mark has more of a kamikaze flying all over the place style. So when Jay and I would, would wrestle, it'd be like, it would feel like, um, you know, a, a very similar styled fight, you know, styles make fights. And so, you know, when we would, when we would work, it would be more, more similar style. And so I would say as far as my style goes and my, you know, my maturation, uh, in the wrestling world goes, Jay had as much to do with it as anybody did. Um, you know, uh, but like I said, Bundy broke me in. And so as far as influence goes, you know, he, he initially smartened me up. Um, once I, you know, as far as being a fan and my influences that I pulled from being a fan, Bret Hart initially, uh, you know, Steve Austin, obviously I think everybody pulled from Steve, um, uh, guys like, you know, Taz, uh, you know, I love that ECW product because ECW, made me feel like I could really do this. Uh, made me feel like I could do it and make money doing it. Uh, you know, when ECW went to pay-per-view, you know, they had a TV deal, but lots of places had TV deals. ECW went to pay-per-view and it made me think, oh my God, I could, I could do this and make money doing it. You know, these guys are my size. You know, I'm not a big guy, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, on a good day. You know, Taz is 5'8". You know, Taz made me believe that if I could sell myself as the guy who could, who could really fight, if I could... If I carved a reputation for myself as someone who could take care of himself and, and someone who's a legit tough guy, then I could make money doing this too. And it just so happened that I went, you know, later on in life and got, you know, was part of Team Taz and got trained by Taz and was lucky enough to, to be there with him. And, uh, and he was, you know, they say don't meet your heroes. I say bullshit because he was everything that I wanted to be and more. You know, he, we still text back and forth. He's still, you know he's that dude. He's, he's everything that, you know, everything you think he is. Uh, and, and then some, uh, because as he matured, you know, in life, he, he, he became more of a, more of an approachable guy, more of a, uh, more of a mentor. I don't, I don't think he could have been as much of a mentor while he was on the road making towns for ECW. Um, he just wasn't in that mindset. Nowadays, he's a different dude. So, so he's definitely everything you think he is and more nowadays. Um, but yeah, uh, so my influence as far as being a fan, guys like that. My influence as far as being in the business, again, guys like Taz, but also the initial, my initial influences, you know, Bundy and, and Jay Briscoe. And getting back to your talking about ECW, something I should have brought up to you when we were in books. I've got a book recommendation for you then. Okay, go for it. Todd Gordon's book about ECW just came out recently. I've heard that it was very good, very insight. I've stayed at the at, at that Travelodge. You know, I when you know, I believe it. It it went from being a Travelodge to being something else when we were doing Ring of Honor out there in in Philly, and we we stayed there. And so the you know, if the walls could talk, I guess. But you know that that famous ECW hotel, man. The story's coming out of that place. And I'm, I heard that Todd goes all out with telling all about him. Yeah, Missy Hyde and Sandman especially. No doubt. No doubt. Two people that I've, I've been, uh, I've crossed paths with. And uh, 
they definitely live up to uh, to the stories about them as well. I know I always heard stories because I live near Greenville, South Carolina. I was about 30 minutes from there growing up. There's always stories about the one hotel that was behind the old Greenville Memorial Auditorium where Crockett had shows every Monday night, and there were all kinds of stories about it. Oh, no doubt. A lot of them flare-related, obviously. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's uh, there's some videos that float around. The boys were, you know, back then in the early days of the camcorders when it was the big, the big monstrosity on top of your shoulder. There's a couple of videos floating around from from you know the the arena and the hotels you know behind the arena. And what is your proudest moment in pro wrestling as a worker? Hmm. You know, I, that's it's, it'd be really hard to say. You know, the easy the easy answer is is tele. You know, work and tele. Everybody wants to work TV. Everybody wants to feel like a superstar. That's the easy answer. But that that you know. That was never the goal, you know, the goal for me, like I, I'm always, I'm more about the art and I, you know, I wanted, I wanted to be looked at as a guy who could just flat out go, you know, someone who could work with anybody, you know, I wanted to be that guy when guys are, when the guys are on the road, you know, they're talking about the really good workers and you, you always want to be that guy that's, you know, they bring up when they're like, he ever worked with that guy. Yeah. He could work with anybody, man. Like you never want to be the guy and I, I, Chris and my brother, Chris, my brother, Scott and I, we tease about it all the time. <clears throat> you never want to be that guy that when they talk about it, it's like, yeah, he was like dragging an anchor. Like you never want to be that guy. You always want to be the guy who's like, you know, we could work with anybody. They, he, that guy could work with anybody. So anytime one of my peers, you know, either post something about me or, I mean, you know, comes up to you after a match and, and tells you how much either of a fan they are of your, your work or how easy it was to work with you or whatever. That's, that's a proud moment. Like, you know, the, the fact that you've honed your craft and carved a reputation for yourself. And I feel at this point in time, I have, you know, carved a reputation for myself and I've, I've honed my craft. But, you know, we, we all, we have those proud moments where it's like, oh, we made TV. I mean, look, my, my brothers and I are from a very small area. We're not from the city, from the big city. We're not from, you know, we're not, we didn't grow up in, in an area that it, where it's conducive to, you know, to getting on television, to being big stars at anything, really. You know, lots of people around here doing the same thing they were doing when they graduated high school. So it's like, we didn't grow up privileged in that way. And so the fact that all of us have made TV, the fact that all of us have worked Hall of Famers and and uh, have honed our craft, and that we've we've really uh, I feel like we're looked at when when people see their name across the bars on the marquee, they're stoked. You know, they're not like, oh God, it's gonna be a long night. You know, like that. I I take a lot of pride in that. Um, you know, proudest matches, getting you know hanging with guys who who are mega stars in the industry. You know, hanging with guys or or any time that you're booked against anytime that uh, a booker books you against the talent who is the quote unquote, the top guy on that card, you know, that booker has a lot of trust in you. You know, whenever, whenever a top guy comes in from one of the big companies and you're booked against that guy, you know, the booker has a lot of trust in you. You know, the, the, the owner has a lot of, you know, they put a lot of stock in you. And so that's a proud moment. Anytime that you're, you know, you're across the, uh, across the card from a guy who, 
is fresh off TV or something like that, you know that you're doing the right things. You know that you're, and it's not that you're kissing the right ass. It, you know, certainly not at my level because that doesn't matter at my level. You know what I mean? Like politics, you know, yeah, there are politics at every level and they suck. But like when it comes right down to it, I don't care what kind of politics you play. The owner does not want to put uh, the top, you know, this top star coming off a of TV in the ring with somebody who can't perform. So if you're, when it comes right down to it, if the bell rings and you're standing across you know, if you, and you're you're the top guy coming into the territory, and you're standing across the ring from me, I'm proud about that. Like, cause I know that I earned that shit. I know that I wasn't given that based on what kind, whose ass I'm kissing. And let's flip that question around and ask for your most embarrassing moment. Fairfax, uh, kind of is up there. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know if you, I don't know if you follow me on. Uh, on social media or anything like that. I'm, pre- I'm pretty open. I'm pretty open book, especially this late in my life. Um, you know, I, long time ago, I had a therapist told me, it's funny cause I just, I just told this to a friend of mine, but long time ago, I had a therapist tell me, uh, like Dustin, you, you know, a lot of people, but very few people actually know you. And that is the truth, but I'm doing a lot better nowadays with letting people in and, 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 allowing people to get close and, and kind of seeing, I guess, exposing myself and, and being upfront with my issues and stuff like that. And I mean, I have PTSD and I have, you know, I've, I've had trauma and who hasn't, I feel like everybody's got demons and skeletons and stuff like that. Fairfax, uh, in July was, was one of those moments where, you know, uh, I had, I'd recently, uh, gone through something that, opened up kind of Pandora's box of issues for me. And I, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but it triggered me and, and opened up, opened up my PTSD and I had not dealt with it. And, uh, I, I go into that match in Fairfax that you were at with, with two good friends of mine, the horsemen who are very capable guys, obviously, you know, PQ and CW incredibly capable guys who you should not. Uh, and I guess that, you know, one of the reasons that I, I didn't, feel like it was an issue and I felt like I'm gonna be fine out there. It's not a problem. Like it's going to be easy is because they're so capable and I'm confident in my abilities too. And I'm confident in my brother as well. So I guess I hadn't really, hadn't really thought about it. And I go out there for that match and just a ball of emotion uh, that I, and I hadn't even touched the surface of what was troubling me or what had triggered me. And I go out there and I don't, I don't know, I, the way that I uh, referred to it afterwards when I talked to the boys when they were like, what happened? You know, because um, one of my good friends, Brandon Day, pulled me aside and uh, he's like, what happened? He, he actually, <laughs> like he pulled me aside into an elevator and stopped the elevator. We were just in an elevator for 30 minutes talking about it. And, uh, you know, B-Day was like, all right, talk to me. What's going on? And I was like, I, I got a case of the yips. You know, if you've played baseball in your life, you know what the yips are. You know, you're out on the mound and. And it's like, all of a sudden, nothing's going right. And you're in your head. And it's like, for no, it's seemingly for no reason, but there, there was definitely a reason. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't, I wasn't ready to deal with that. Wasn't ready to face it. And I go out there with these two guys who are incredibly capable and my brother, who's also incredibly capable. And I just, my mind went somewhere else. And I, and when you do that in the ring, somebody, you know, like me, I immediately tighten up and 
and and I I could have hurt. You know, I was in there with CW at the time, and I I snugged up on him without even realizing that I was because my mind was just in a different place. And I snugged up, and and he's like, you know, what is going on with you? And I wasn't even hearing. I wasn't hearing him. I wasn't hearing Chris. I wasn't hearing PQ. I wasn't hearing anybody. I, my mind was just in another dimension, and uh, I just my it was completely blank. It was like I forgot everything that I had ever been trained to do. I, and, and I was just like on autopilot in there and could not wait to get out of there. And by the time my mind snapped back to it and, and I, th- this ne- it's never happened to me. That's, that's, this is the only time it's ever happened to me. And, uh, <clears throat> and look, I've, I've definitely, I've buried some issues in pro wrestling. Like I've, you know, I have used the business to escape so much and just buried stuff and buried stuff and buried stuff. And, uh, this just crept up on me and, and bit me in the ass at the worst time possible. And poor C dub PQ. I'm sure they were looking at me like what in the, cause look, they both worked with me. They both know I can go. When we got to the back, CW was like, I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not, he had to keep reminding me. Cause I was like, just punch me in the face. Like I'm, I'm a worthless piece of crap. Like I was so, mad at myself and that's what i kept telling him he's like i'm not mad at you and i'm like i'm mad at me dude like i'm mad at me and you know c-dub and i were very similar like we're very you know we keep a lot of stuff down deep and um and i think he knew that like he knows that about me and so he immediately felt like he knew it was up even though he didn't he didn't smarten me up to it i think he i felt like he i feel like he knew it was up and um yeah, it was embarrassing, man, because I've ne- that's never happened to me in the ring. I, the ring has always been my – it's like my Valhalla. The ring has always been where I escape things, not where I have to face things or where, you know, where I met with, with trauma or where I met with PTSD, which is exactly what happened in this match. Like as soon as the bell rang, it was like my brain was like, nope, not doing this. And it it – I was gone. And I – and the only thing I can think to do afterwards, you know, I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I isolate when I, you know, when I'm hurting, I isolate. And so I isolated for a while. And when I was ready to, to speak on it, you know, I text each one of them individually, Chris, Britt, uh, Chris, CW and PQ, <laughs> like I, I text them all individually. And then I sent out a post on Facebook and was like, you know, here's what happened basically. And, and like apologize to all of them again. And they all were like, you don't need to do that, dude. But I did, I needed to do it for me. Like I needed to do it. So it didn't happen again. I needed to address it and get it out. So it didn't happen again. And some people might contend that, dude, that's not an embarrassing moment. That's something that everybody goes through, but that's never happened to me in the ring before. Like that's never, the ring has always been where I escape my stuff, where I bury my problems, not where I'm, I'm smacked in the face with them. And it just so happened that on that night with those guys where it's like you could work them on autopilot and it still be a great match. I dropped the ball. And not only did I drop the ball, I could have hurt one of them because I, and I'm a, I'm a, I don't know my own strength sometimes. And I hit really hard sometimes and I'm, I'm snug in there anyway. Like I'm, I'm, I'm more prone to being, uh, not stiff, but snug in a good, in a, in a good way because, I like that in return, you know, it's just, it's the style that I was, that was always taught to me. It's the style that I've practiced all my life. So, you know, I could have hurt one of them and I would have never, I've never hurt anybody in 28 years. I've never hurt anybody in the ring, knock on wood. And hopefully I never do. But if I'd have hurt one of them, 
I don't know that I've been able to live myself. I wouldn't. I don't know that I've been able to keep on. I might have had to stop right. That might have been the last match you ever seen for me because I don't know what I'd have done if I'd have hurt either one of them because I, I, you know, they're all like family to me. So, but yeah, that's definitely man. That was it was so embarrassing for me and hard for me to swallow. Hard for me to to admit that like in my safest place, trauma creeped in. In the, in the place that I've felt most safe my entire life, because I've been doing this for longer than I wasn't doing it, if that makes sense. Like, I, you know, I've been doing it for 28 years, started when I was 14, so I've been doing it for longer than I wasn't doing it. Always my safest place, and trauma and PTSD creeped into that place, and I was mad at myself and embarrassed that I let it. Um, but, again, thankfully, I was, I was in there with the guys that I was in there with, guys that know me, guys that love me, guys that know my capabilities and they were all incredibly gracious and, and, and loving and forgiving and appreciative and, and understanding. So even in my most embarrassing moments in the ring, it still turned out to be a positive. We still turn it into a learning experience if nothing else. This concludes part one of my interview with Dustin Tarr and Les Bowman. Thanks to both of them for being my guest. Join us next time for part two when we talk in-depth about what happened behind the scenes at Eastern Shore Pro Wrestling. And now for our credits. I'm Jeff Quentin, and I'm the host. Our producer is Scott English. If you'd like to contribute to the very cost of this podcast and receive a mention as a producer in these credits, please contact us at dmvprowrestling at gmail.com. Our production assistant is Josie Quentin. Musical credits are provided in the notes for this episode. Thanks again for joining us, and be sure to visit dmvprowrestling.com every day for the latest pro wrestling news. Show. Yeah, yeah, two tickets to the gun show!